The question is, do I have any guidelines for interviews? Um, I would try to keep the conversation at the at the interview with what's happening for you, you know, in the in your days of practice. So if you have any questions or any difficulties, uh, but to try to keep the theme of the conversation in regard to your own experience rather than kind of a lot of uh, esoteric questions and to try to keep aware of the time, you know, that because we have a lot of people here. Uh, so those, uh, those are the main things. Uh, the role of journal writing, uh, is it, does it destroy the container of this that much? Mm-hmm. Or, I know you're not supposed to be writing, but sometimes there are small things you don't want to write down. The question is about journal writing. You know, how much is it appropriate to be writing things down? I would I would do as little writing as you need to do. You know, uh, we usually recommend not doing any if you can. Uh, I would look at the motivation because a lot of times we tend to be wanting to keep any insights or understandings that we have, you know, there's a way in which we don't trust that we're going to (laughs) remember, you know, later. Yeah, yeah. So if it's just, uh, I would really look at the motivation. Sometimes people need to write if they're going through a difficult time and and you talk with one of the teachers and sometimes it is helpful. But a lot of it will be um, a fear that we're not going to be wise you know, four months from now, and that we need to refer back to that. Uh, and in that way, I would discourage it. Yeah. It's that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if. I don't think directions themselves, but if you, uh, uh, where the office is, there's a stairway that goes upstairs, and all the interviews are up that stairway, and when you get to the top of the stairway, go to the right around that um, corner, and all the interviews are down that uh, hallway. And just ask someone if you can't find it. Michelle, I think there's a little map at the top of the stairs. Okay. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, with these instructions, um, I get confused as, as to when my mind starts wandering. You know, I listen to a sound and then it wanders, and I don't know whether to go back to the sound and my breath or sensations, and then mm-hmm. I get on a sensation and I, I get it and I'm really glad. And then I would I would pick an anchor that holds you know that mostly you come back to one anchor. So we we're trying to introduce different uh, ways of anchoring in the present moment because some people find the breath really helpful, some people find sound really helpful, some people find a combination of body, breath, 
or body sound helpful. So if you're used to using the breath as an anchor, I would, if you notice the mind wandering, just, just go back to the breath as the initial anchor. If, is, it, is that helpful? Yeah, just, just come back to the breath. And if, if you have any questions about that, I would, um, you know, we're all unique in how we work with the anchor in the present moment. So uh, in your interviews, I would really make use of that time to ask questions about that, how it's working for you, and um, we'll help you if, if you're having any question or doubt about how you're working with it. Probably depends on who you ask. Um, <laughs> uh, I think we're all trying to uh, encourage both and what works for you. And, and, and I think that wherever we are in our practice, certain things, you know, certain t- techniques will be helpful for some at some times, some at other times. Uh, like this morning, I think what I was trying to uh, encourage is to start open and then to gradually focus, if you're having trouble focusing, open again. Uh, so that you can, make, uh, there's no ultimate um, right way. It's more doing what's useful for you in the moment. Ultimately letting go of control and letting it happen as it happens is the freest. Uh, so see, see what works for you. Usually we're finding that for most people being open at the beginning and then focusing as much as you can. And then within the sitting you'll find that at times focusing will be really helpful uh, and it'll really um, stabilize the mind at times. Other times it'll feel like it's too tight and opening will be more helpful. And again, I think that if you think of a radio and find the fine-tuning when you're really trying to tune in a station, we'll all be different in how that fine-tuning in being in the present moment works for us. And really try to make use of the interviews in terms of finding how you're going with it. Not too spaced out, not too tight but just right. (laughs) 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 You're all here. You survived the first two days of practice. The third day is here. You seem good. So I guess you all know there's interviews today. Um, 
have a good day. Uh, keep working with just settling in, you know, gently, and have a lot of patience with yourselves. Have a good day. I have two and a Yeah, um, this is stuff that, that came up for me out of Joseph's talk last night about mm-hmm. desire. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like he talked about how it can be invisible to us because it's so ingrained and, 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 and how fantasy can uh, desire underlie fantasy. And I've been aware that almost all of what I call thinking takes place in the form of fantasy. Um, like imaginary, uh, it's not exactly a conversation, there's somebody there listening, but it's more a monologue. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, but of course there's nobody there. It's just in my head, and, and you know, I tried to, to, to look at that. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm wanting to be recognized and admired, you know, this desire, and, and then I tried to look kind of underneath that, and there's just, you know, what does that give me? So that, that allows me to, like, um, feel good about myself. And then there's, like, do, do I need that to feel good about myself? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, this spins endlessly for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, when I try to think about that stuff, even, I'm thinking of it in terms of, you know, talking to you or somebody. Right, about right. And I think to do, now this is where the question comes in. Mm-hmm. I, I went coaching. Um, there, there's, I think there's three things that I can think to do with it. One is to kind of reflect on it when I catch it. You know, what am I getting from this? Um, what it might it be like if I didn't have this desire? And, and, and to feel what it's like at each point. Um, Do I have to repeat that question? (laughs) We're supposed to repeat the questions, but um, I think you all heard that the question is around desire and uh, the kind of monologue that goes on that um, he's aware of that uh, it's hard to figure out really how to work with skillfully, I think. That's what you're asking. Um, Mostly I think what's important is our relationship to what's happening. And I think that the way that I um, am hearing you working with it is more like trying to figure it out. And so in that moment where you're trying to figure it out, I would really pay attention to trying to figure it out. Because there's a, de- there's a desire in that. It's, it's like, um, you know, for me, if I hear that monologue, I just note hearing. Because I think that that's, in that moment, that's, <clears throat> you can just treat it like that. It's just hearing. But if we try to start to dig out all the layers underneath it, uh, Vipassana isn't necessarily trying to dig out anything except to just really be aware of the process of how something's happening. And if we're getting caught, 
to, to step back and look at our relationship to it. So I think that if you can step back and notice the relationship to it without getting caught in trying to figure it out, it would be helpful. But I think if you start getting caught in figuring it out, which is very seductive, you know, we can really rationalize that one. You know, because we're here to understand. And I think that line between just noticing the process of how something's happening and getting in there and kind of starting to really uh, figure it out, it's different. That's different. And the way I really tell if I'm getting lost in figuring it out is I look at the watch and after five or ten minutes, if you're still, you know, well, <laughs> trying to figure it out, it, you're caught. So mostly I would just, if, if hearing isn't an appropriate metaphor for you with it, I would try to figure out another note for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm having a persistent problem with back pain uh, every time I sit. And, uh, I think probably part of it is I'm just more, because I'm sitting, I'm more aware of it. Uh, but it's associated in my mind with a lot of with mindset diversion. When we get to the point where we can't face the day, I would say one is getting, you know, one has been investigating it maybe even too much. It's like, um, I would recommend if it's getting to that point that you do at times sit in the library. Or usually the first two weeks of a long retreat like this, I'll sit in a, on a cushion, then a bench, then a chair, cushion, bench, chair, just for my, you know, my because I have a lower back problem. Uh, it helps me ease into the schedule. Because the first two weeks, unless you've had an unusual life, it's a, it's a big change for the body to get adjusted to that posture. Although some people have the karma where it's much easier than others. Within that, I would work with it according to your energy. So if you're low energy, I would really try to develop an awareness that isn't going to that pain. Try to stay away from it when you're low energy. Really try to go to the breath or hearing. Because if you're tired, it's going to become a war and you'll lose. You know, if we're tired, we don't usually have the energy to have the mindfulness to see it clearly. And there'll become a, a pattern of getting lost in it and, and almost like developing aversion to it. We'll reinforce the aversion to it. If you're high energy, there's a real chance to be mindful of it and going into that area and really investigating what it is that we call pain and unpleasantness. And when there's mindfulness, we see through the resistance. It's like there isn't a resistance to the unpleasantness. There's an ability to open to it, sink into that experience, 
and not, not have a problem with it. And that's very invigorating, energizing, uh, we understand. You know, so at those times I would really go into it. And then, but keep up a relationship with the breath if it's a chronic area. And then medium energy, instead of going into the core of it, try to go to the edges of it so that you're not in that pain all the time. You know, the, the part of the practice is developing this flexibility of attention that can move away from areas as well as go into them. We tend to be conditioned to have resistance to unpleasant experiences. And when there isn't much mindfulness, when we're tired, we tend to try to get into the pain, but we can't because there's so much resistance. And it's you, I really encourage people to tend to move away rather than go into the pain, either feel the edges of the resistance. It's okay, just explore the resistance or move to the breath to the resistance. Um, and when there's mindfulness, there's the ability to either say, oh, resistance, and to, to go into it, allow it, and usually we can sink right into that unpleasant sensation at that point. The resistance melts. And when we can actually get inside that unpleasant experience, it's usually fine. It's throbbing, stabbing, burning. You know, it's usually one of the, you know, more... Um, pain is a very intense sensation. <laughs> And we usually can notice some change when the mindfulness is there within it. At least it's throbbing, or at least it's hard, but there'll be a sense of there's space around it. There's a lot to be learned in precision. Um, I think that how I would recommend working with that is if you can, at times, bring the attention to a more precise focus and investigate in that way. If you can, do it. But if you can't, work with the open awareness. You know, and, and try not to see one as 
more important than another. They're both very valid ways of experiencing, and they're both, both important to cultivate. Uh, so that there'll be times mostly I would it's it's very hard to do that very precise awareness because it takes a lot of energy and to try to maintain that all day um, would be impossible at this point in the retreat but it's very helpful it's a balance you know the to say that open awareness is is uh, more important than precise awareness or precise awareness more important than open they're, they're both useful and workable for us at times. It's good to know how to do both. Uh, and ultimately, we're, we're moving toward an awareness that doesn't control anything. You know, there, that, that uh, there wouldn't be any control. The awareness would just be open or more precise just as, as it rolled along. But we're not always in that choiceless awareness. Uh, so if you don't have choiceless awareness and you have a choice... <laughs> then I would go to what seems appropriate at the time. Uh, so if you have some energy and interest in being more focused and precise, go for it. Try it. And it, you'll be able to maintain it for a certain amount of time, and then you won't be able to maintain it anymore. And try the open awareness at that time. And see how that goes. See if you can play with it. Uh, and if you feel confused, go to... The, the anchor in the present moment that works for you, the, the most, you know, it, that holds your attention. Um, there's one more question that I'll answer quickly, which is, uh, what is the purpose of walking meditation, concentration, or insight? It's both. Uh, the walking meditation. There's levels to why we do anything. So it's great to learn how to pay attention when we're walking. And that one reason for doing walking meditation is to pay attention <coughs> while we're walking. But there's, that we can develop concentration in the walking and we can develop insight in the walking. Um, the, the movement of the legs is the anchor just like the uh, hearing or the movement of the breath is the anchor. In the walking, it's the movement of the legs that's the anchor. And if other things arise while you're walking, like hearing, for example, if it's strong, notice you won't have a choice. If you're walking and a sound calls the attention, it'll be choiceless. Just let the attention know that hearing's taking place. And then when it's not calling the attention anymore, just go back to the walking. And if something, you know, say, you know, there's a big, huge, obsessive thought pattern or a big emotion that's happening and you can't pay attention to the walking, that's usually when we suggest to kind of stop the walking, really let whatever's happening, happening, and then continue to walk. But mostly we encourage just, you know, to keep walking through whatever's happening. Even if, you know, you notice hearing, you can keep walking. Um, but if... If something major is happening, sometimes it's helpful to stop, allow it, open the eyes, you know, open up, and then start in again. Well, it looks like we might have some vitamin D today. So (laughs) enjoy it while it lasts.
it's not during the no. It's okay during the Dharma talk. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of um, conflict and confusion around um, the idea of no self and desire and my um, childhood patterns of claiming space in the world and making those things expressed by if I want and need. And you know, if I just say, well, it's just desire, it's almost like repeating my childhood patterns of denying and minimizing. We're supposed to repeat the questions for the tape, that's why I'm smiling. The question is around, um, I'll, I'll synthesize it. Uh, the question is about how to work with desire in a, a skillful way in the world. The awareness practice gives us the choice in terms of uh, whenever a thought appears in the mind, if we're not aware, we're usually just a victim of the thought process, and we tend to um, go with different thoughts like, uh, I want this, I want that, without any kind of discrimination. So the mindfulness practice gives us the chance to be able to notice the thought process itself and to see if we're uh, identifying with a thought, believing a thought, uh, in a way that where we can really look at the intention on a very deep level underneath the thought and see if that action that we're about to do, if we're about to fulfill a desire, is healthy or not. And the way we determine that is to see if it's uh, healthy not only for ourselves but for other beings as well. Um, if one tends to be conditioned to think of others first, and not oneself, then the mindfulness practice will give one the choice to actually consider oneself as well as others. If one tends to think of oneself first and not consider others, then it also balances that. One can have the choice to consider others as well as oneself. Um, So there is such a thing as a healthy action, a skillful action. That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to develop. And that includes taking care of ourselves and considering others. So I think if you, if you have that kind of conditioning, whenever you have a choice around an action, it's important for you to consider the intention in terms of yourself as well as others. I'm just wondering 
Steve, how you would handle the same situation today. Um, it's like you need to be able to speak up to people, but then on the other hand, sometimes you're in a situation where you deal with unpleasant unpleasantness and then make your getaway when it's time to. <laughs> <laughs> I think the training with, that I received working with that irritating monk was to understand that there are times when there are conditions that you can't do anything about. I couldn't do anything to him. I couldn't make him stop. I tried. And given that situation, I still was concerned about my own happiness. And doing whatever I could in order not to um, be tripped out by my own irritability. And it required, you know, as I acknowledged last night, a lot of really careful acknowledgement of what was going on in each moment of being irritated. In the world at large, often we don't have that steadiness of mind. But even a little bit can prevent us from acting in such a way that we're going to take a little irritation and make it into a crisis. So a little bit of mindfulness could stop uh, an unskillful reaction. And later when the irritation had um, subsided, maybe some careful reflection would give me uh, some ideas on how to approach that person uh, without the anger being the vehicle for communication. Restraint and action. Mm. <coughs> when we do the Brahma Viharas over the three months, I think you'll find that uh, the last Brahma Vihara, equanimity, is a, is a very powerful boundary practice the first three Brahma Viharas uh, help us to connect the heart with all beings and feel interconnected with all beings. But that doesn't mean that we don't um, <coughs> know that we, we take responsibility for ourselves. And we're, we're, we're the ones who need to also protect ourselves. On the, level of, on, on the level of no self, there's really, when we're aware that we're interconnected, we wouldn't neglect ourselves as part of the whole. We also wouldn't neglect others. There'd be an equality of how we care. Easier to practice here than out there at this point. <laughs> I get confused in meditation when I see visual stimulum. With my eyes closed, sometimes color patterns or sometimes strong pictures will come to the, the foreground. I don't really see myself as thinking, though, and I get confused whether I should be noting that or... I would note seeing. Seeing? Yeah. It's interesting to really, yeah. <laughs> well, it's great because it, in a way, what we call a thought 
you know, just like what we call a hand, what our experience of hand is is very different than often what we think hand is or see hand is. But when we bring our attention and actually feel the sensations, it's a whole universe in itself. And the thought process, we might think that it's just maybe words, but actually if you look very closely, there's a lot of seeing in thinking. And it's to be able to, the more quiet you'll get, the more you'll be able to just note seeing. And then if you have a lot of awareness, see what happens to the image when you note it. Well, it's vitamin D day again. Steve just asked me if there was an earthquake this morning. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but we had a, I'd say a light <laughs> tremor. <laughs> it's nice to just get that little uh, message that the earth isn't solid. Is <laughs> we think it wasn't a big message, just a little teaching. Uh, so enjoy your day. Mm-hmm. Um, yesterday uh, I was practicing pretty hard and during the uh, hour-long sitting afternoon uh, about uh, 45 minutes into it I, I had some really painful uh, physical sensations going on mm-hmm. and um, I noted that uh, I had a perception that if I stayed with it that um, my energy would get really high, and um, I'd sort of uh, lose my focus a little bit. Um, and that was that was just from past experience. So um, I had a choice of, you know, either to uh, try to remove the pain by moving, or to um, just stay with it. So I said, well, the practice is just to, um, you know, stay with it and observe what happens. So. Um, so I stayed with it, and then um, for like an hour after that, what I had expected was true. And so like during evening dinner, um, it was really hard for me to be mindful. My energy was like really high, and I was really angry, um, and sort of out of balance. So mm-hmm. uh, that's what my question really comes down to is, if you can see an imbalance coming up like that, uh, you know, is it best just to stick with it and, and see what's going to happen, or to go with your perception about it? About it? The, question is <coughs> the question is around <coughs> working with physical pain about 45 minutes into a sitting. He had the experience and has had the experience of when he brings his attention to it. Uh, it's very energizing, uh, and he fe- and feels like it uh, threw him off balance. So the question is whether to observe this pain in that way, or to move, or something else. I would I would treat it in kind of levels. So 
when that, when that choice comes up, when you're in the sitting and 45 minutes into the sitting, it's like that. The first thing I would do would be to not... When you bring your attention into it, are you bringing it all the way into it, or are you observing it from a distance? Mm-hmm. Uh, because when it gets really painful, I try to um, go all the way into it and, and focus in on it. Mm-hmm. So you bring your attention really close to it. Yeah. That would be, if you, ca- if you do that, that's what will make it energizing. If you, if you go kind of more open and, and notice it from a distance, or even go to sounds and ignore it, it wouldn't, you wouldn't, I don't think you'd get so energized. It's fine. It's also fine to move, but I would I would take it in steps. So instead of bringing the attention and going way into into the core of it, if you know that energizes you, I would move away from it, back to the breath, observe it from a distance. You might get called into the pain, but then you would just leave it, notice it from a distance, open up to sound, so that you can keep the balance with it. So you don't have to always go into the core of it to, to notice it or explore it. With something like this, it really helps to have like a flexibility of attention, like an elastic band. And if you go into it and stay in there a long time, the concentration usually increases and the energy might increase. But there might not be the m- mindfulness, this non-judgmental attention. That's usually what throws us off. So if we don't have that very, um, the intention to understand when we go into that area, an area of pain, usually we'll get irritated because there'll be, we're not in balance and we might get more concentrated, but we might not understand anything. So that's, that's, that's really the key here, is if there's mindfulness, you can explore it, but if there isn't, I would, I would open up move in and out of it, or ignore it entirely for a while. Um, and if it comes to the point of that you're, it's an endurance test and there's a lot of aversion building up, then it's okay to move. It's a good question. You see your posture is starting to slouch. It's okay just to pull it straight. That's or do you need to just hold the mm-hmm. kind of tension and study it much? <laughs> the question Sink. the question is about slouching. If you notice that the posture is starting to slouch, uh, should one move back up or just notice oneself slouching and slouching <laughs> and slouching? <laughs> um, most of the time I would say to Notice that one's slouching. Be aware of the intention to move back. And be aware of the whole process of the sensations of moving back. So that you're not treating that as an interruption of your practice, but part of the practice. There are times when the mindfulness and the energy and concentration might be very powerful. You know, you would know it because you'd think that you were having a peak experience. You know, you'll know that you're very um, present and alert. Sometimes at those times, if you're starting to slouch, it's better 
not better not to move up at that point. Um, but that's that's kind of rare in a day. Most of the time, I would I would sit up because it'll be energizing to sit up. So most important, um, please don't write notes to each other in the hall. Have a good day. Oh, also, there was one more announcement. If you're, if you're, uh, (coughs) any questions this morning? The question is about um, working with emotion and wondering how to skillfully work with it if uh, watching the emotion and the thought, uh, if it's skillful to back away and get um, involved in the dukkha storm, did you say? In some ways, a feeling of play, I think, has an element of flexibility, and I think that that's nice. You wouldn't want to purposefully choose to get involved in a thought. I mean, if you cannot get involved in a thought, it would be more skillful not to. The idea in the practice is to let go of control as much as possible, because any controlling is really aversion or attachment. So in this case, you know, if you feel like you want to step back and just see what happens if you don't control, um, 
that would be having an element of flexibility, flexibility or play with it. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the intention to get lost in it. That, you know, that would um, be like intending not to see clearly. I wouldn't reinforce that. Right. Mm-hmm. You would, just like a cloud that passes through the sky, if sadness arises and a thought, a thought comes and then the sadness comes and then a thought comes and embarrassment comes, you would just, just let that happen and with awareness. And that's where you're free. The awareness is free. The awareness isn't caught in it, it's just noticing it passing through. Just like noticing a sound, it's just like noticing a sound pass through, or noticing a physical sensation, the breath come through. It's just watching sadness come through. The question is about getting lost. Even though one has the strong intention to be with the breath, uh, we can have a strong intention to be with something like the breath or to not judge, but that doesn't mean we can't, can control what happens. It's good to set the stage with an intention, the intention to be clear. For example, when you start to sit or whatever can you connect with with an intention. and. 
then it's a matter of letting go of control and noticing what happens. So to, to have an idea that you could even sit for 10 minutes and not have a thought, you know, to think that you can just be with a breath for 10 minutes without even having one thought pass through, that's not the purpose of the meditation. Um, it's, it, can, it can be frustrating that we get lost, but often around this time in the retreat, people will feel like they're doing worse than they had been at the beginning because actually the mindfulness is stronger and you'll be noticing more how much you get lost. Whereas at the beginning of the retreat, one wouldn't have noticed that many moments of getting lost. The, the mindfulness is sharper, actually. So it could be that you're doing better than ever, but you're noticing more how much the attention wanders. And, and it, 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 can be, I'm not, it can be frustrating, but a lot of it is learning that that's how it is. You know, that there's a deeper acceptance that the mind wanders. And then when you find that you're lost, it's just, oh, lost, great. It's okay. And they come into just anchor again. And even if you get lost the next second, you just anchor again. And it, a lot of it is beginning again, and beginning again, and beginning again, and beginning again, and beginning again. <laughs> it just, it's endless beginning again. It depends how you theorize what the change is going to come out of. I think the change comes out of mindfulness itself. Um, it, it, it doesn't come by making anything happen. And I think if you're worried about balancing effort, you know, I think that if one becomes too soft or too receptive, one can tend to go to sleep. Uh, and if one becomes too much of a I'm going to make this happen no matter what, one gets really tight. And in either way, the attention isn't balanced. You know, so if you work with acceptance for a while, and it fi- feels like it's getting so soft that there's no energy, then you would bring back you know, more of a um, determination. But uh, if you expect to be kind of balanced all day with en- energy and determination, again, it's, it's much more of a sense of uh, you'll hit these places of balance and then you'll find that you're more in the accepting place and then you might be more in the warrior place. And just see if you cannot take it personally but let it just happen. Balance yourself according to these impersonal factors of energy rather than thinking that it's you. Patience. Mm-hmm. In Wegus, I have a question. Uh, I kind of feel like I'm in the practice double joints right now. And there was talk the other night about there being this upward curve. Right, right. This is pretty empirical. But if there's anything that, that you need faith in, is in that process then? I mean, just keep coming back. There is something going on. 
Right, right, right. That the question is about feeling like there's a sense of doldrums in his practice rather than an upward curve of uh, progress, one would say. Uh, if you have an image of doldrums, it's like, say there's a boat, a sailboat, way out in the sea, and there's no wind. What can you do about it? You wait, but you do the best. The, the more, every moment that you come back to the present moment isn't wasted. Something's happening. Yeah, I, I noticed being the practice Right. <laughs> it's true. Uh-huh. It's peer pressure. <laughs> That's one of the benefits of sitting with a group. You know, it, there's a lot, you know, I remember when I used to sit in my room and I'd, you know, in the back years ago and I'd be really careful walking around and the moment I walked in my room I'd shut the door and I'd go, you do I don't have to move my door. throw things around and it would be like, oh, you know, there's some power in being with a group because there's more energy for being here. But, but try to have patience with the times when there's no wind because the wind will come back and, and it doesn't Please don't try to judge your practice. Where, you know, it's like you have no idea. The more the retreat goes on, you'll have no idea where you are. But I can assure you that it's moving. Yeah. Do you have any questions this morning? I've got one about uh, knots, the hairy devil knot in medicine. And the analogy with this tangled with stuff. Um, what comes to mind for me is a, like a fishing line tangle. And to untangle it, you don't want to pull them in. So you just kind of work it out this way. So what's the analogy? Just to hold everything in a big spacious awareness and let it resolve itself? The question is about the, not the hairy devil, but he sort of sees the knot as more like a fishing line tangle, where if he pulled the end, he'd be in big trouble (laughs) with a fishing line. So he's wondering if it's more opening up and let it it just kind of untangle that way if we open up our attention. Like, what is the analogy? Is that right? Yeah, okay. exactly. <clears throat> the analogy was to see if we can get out of the way so that the knots untangle themselves. And most of the practice <clears throat> is learning to get out of the way. Uh, and let the practice unfold on its own. That's the hardest thing for us to do. We tend to be getting into things and manipulating them out of aversion and attachment. And whenever we get into a body sensation or a thought or an emotion, if there's any aversion or attachment going on, (coughs) we're reinforcing aversion and attachment. 
And then that way the, the, the knot just gets more entangled out of that aversion and attachment. So if one is um, trying to say if there's a body sensation in the body, maybe it's an old chronic area. If we're going in there and the mindfulness isn't there, <coughs> but our, t- <coughs> our attention is there with the intention to try to change it or to get rid of it in some way, that's um, entangling the knot. But if we go there with mindfulness, with the attitude of pure exploration, where there's just the intention to let it be, to explore it, to let it reveal itself, usually the knot untangles. Sometimes they take a long time. We might not notice any change for a long time, but that pure exploration lets it just happen in its own time. Within pure exploration, there's a lot of acceptance and non-identification. The question is, how do we take an, um, how do we perceive things in terms of um, self? How do we make that happen? We're talking about identification. So anytime, say there's a, um, right now, we're all, most of us are, our, our eyes are open and they're seeing happening. There's a tendency for us to have the attention jump out of uh, this area, jump out, make, make a form out of the color. There's just this color and light and patterns of shapes here in seeing. We're very conditioned very quickly for the, for the attention to jump out and make something out of things. And if we don't notice that happening, if we don't notice that we're making something out of this just color and form, there's a tendency then to notice a Michelle out of this color and form. And then it could be that we make a person out of it, you know, much more strongly. I am me seeing, and that is you. You know, it's like this is a Steve, this is a pillow. We tend to form things and even that isn't, isn't so um, solid as when we really identify with I am seeing. That's where, that's where it really gets into a separation. So with any sense door, if we're not aware how we're perceiving itself, we make a very separate world, whether it's a sound, you know, say the sound of the heat, we tend to think of it as outside of myself rather than just happening in this big field of life. We can do it with thought, we can do it with body sensations. Anytime we take the perception and turn it into something separate and solid. Say a thought, a thought. 
I love the sun. If we don't notice that the thought is just coming and going, and, and there's no need to believe that thought as mine, we can just see that it's just one of these endless thoughts that go through the mind. But if we believe it, especially in New England, <laughs> we're bound to suffer. <laughs> The question is about in metta we have a phrase like may I be happy. Um, so what I is that? Uh, one of the wonderful things about doing the metta practice is that one starts to see that one's understanding of what one wishes will deepen and deepen and deepen. And that, that phrase, um, the first phrase that one is given traditionally is, may you or may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, for example. Um, if you really understand what you're wishing, you would wish uh, the person to deeply understand that there's no solid, separate self, and that would be the protection. Being safe from inner harm means really understanding very deeply um, that any time we identify with a thought or a sound or a body sensation or, you know, whatever, that we suffer. So one's wishing that person to really deeply understand and be safe. And when one wishes oneself happiness, it's the same thing, that one wishes oneself complete understanding. And out of that complete understanding is a complete peace or happiness. And the sense of eyes release. Yeah, it's not that the... That's, be careful of trying to annihilate the eye. There's no, there was no eye, and that's when there's a sense of being a separate self. So it's just a, it's just a slight misperception. I found myself quite disturbed by the uh, gunshots you see. And um, doing the method practice, and I'm wondering how to hold that and what to do with it when that those feelings come. What was the disturbance? Was it fear or uh, sadness or In some ways, compassion is a little more appropriate. Like when you hear the shots and there's that feeling of, you know, this world, everyone is eating each other, basically. You know, we're all, <laughs> whether we're vegetarian or not, if you just take one look outside, there's the beautiful birds and there's that perspective of the beautiful birds. But if you look closely, you know, the robins are eating the worms. You know, there's two sides to life. There's the beauty and the suffering. Um, hunting season really makes us aware of the situation. And we can have the perspective that maybe 
we don't really need to be hunting and killing anymore, but some people don't have that perspective. Holding all this in the context of suffering, I think, in terms of compassion, is usually more helpful because one can have compassion for oneself in the, in the feelings of the sadness about it, or the fear. And one can have compassion for the animals, and one can have compassion for the people hunting. It's, it's like it's being able to take a whole view of it and see that it, one can hold it in the context of suffering. <coughs> also, bird season um, isn't as bad as deer season. <laughs> Just to warn you, so bird season sort of gets us prepared for deer season. It's more, usually more intense. Uh, and it's a great opportunity for all of us to practice compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question about when um, emotions from the past get um, projected onto whatever you want to use the word onto circumstances in the present. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very real and it's very confusing. The question is about when one feels confusion and there's emotion or memories coming up from the past and it's not really clear what's happening. Um, It sounds like compassion, again, might be the first step to see that one is confused and suffering. And the first thing I would do is try not to judge it and to feel any kind of care care about the pain. You don't have to know what the pain is with compassion. It's just to have this um, attitude of surrounding yourself with care. You can care about the confusion. If, if mindfulness isn't possible at first, or if there's a tightness around it, compassion helps soften one's relationship to whatever's happening, if it's suffering. Um, And then I think there's a certain point where if you feel soft around the pain, there's a way in which we can work with accepting it and allowing it, even if, again, we don't know what it is. It can still be confusion. And often we can project fear or anger onto anything. I mean, I I have many times in my life, uh, usually if I finally figure out if it's anger or fear or sadness, whatever, sometimes I note, oh, it's fear attack number 2,222. 
in one day, you know, or it's saying, we, if that's one of the beauties of being on retreat, is just seeing how we can project fear onto anything, or we can project anger onto anything. Uh, it's a humbling practice. Hopefully you experience that humility in it all. Uh, so just see if you can kind of, if you need to go to your room, if it feels like it's more appropriate for you to go to your room, just, it's okay, just go to your room. If it feels like you can be here in the hall and work with it, uh, try it. You can try, thing, try different ways to work with it. Sometimes it's better to go outside and get some space and walk through it. But remember that it's okay to be confused. You'd have to be more specific about what would precipitate it. Like a memory or... Can you be more specific? It's kind of... Huh. Okay, you might bring it up with one of your teachers because it's, it's like, it depends what it is. You know, if it was something that's happening all the time, like looking at the Buddha image, I don't think you'd want to avoid that all the time. But if it was something really difficult to work with and it seemed like it was better to back off, that it, it would be better to talk with one of your teachers. Have a good day. Any questions this morning? Actually, I am. Um, oh, the question. The question was uh, when I was doing the metta practice, I found that myself was often the difficult person, so that when that was happening, I often switched the order, the traditional order. It depended whether I was sitting or walking. If I was walking, sometimes I would save food from my um, lunch or breakfast. And when I would start walking, I would send, I would throw food out, little crumbs out to the ants or the chipmunks, and I, I would start by uh, sending metta to all the beings around me walking, and that helped open up the space for me to do the metta for myself. So I often did that for five or ten minutes. Sometimes I would feed the birds. Uh, when I was sitting. Uh, I started with a stuffed animal that I had <laughs> because it it was just what worked for me. You know, I uh, 
had my little stuffed animal up on an altar, and I'd send it to the stuffed animal, and then I would send it to myself, and it... But for me to tell Upandita that, I, I skipped that part. <laughs> In the West, I find that um, I recommend to people to start with really whatever is the easiest. And that's what I learned quite deeply in that practice and what moved me very deeply was that it's really gentle and you're meant to start with what's easy. And so I noticed in the West a lot of people start with their children, for example, if they have children, because that's easy for them. Or a lot of people have a deep connection with animals or birds. And whatever it is that's easy to start with that, some people it's not human beings. And that's okay. If you can find a human being that is easy, then you start with that human being. And if oneself isn't easy, usually you start with the easy, so you can connect somehow with that feeling of unconditional love. It's just like holding a newborn, you know, that feeling for oneself or a feeling for another. Uh, So whatever helps you touch that open-heartedness, Yeah, the question is around um, if it's what happens if a lot of people come into mind when you're doing one person in the metta or uh, how useful is it to do different people within one category. If you're doing the metta, you know, day in and day out, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, it's quite different than if you're doing it five or ten minutes uh, because if you're doing it five or ten minutes or a little bit each day, I think it, you're not really trying to develop this deep concentration with it, and it's fine to shift people more. If you're doing it in a long-term way, it's usually helpful to stay with one person a lot at the beginning. For example... I stayed with what one would call the benefactor category, but I did a dear friend for a month. And sitting, walking, eating, you just do this one person as much as you can, and then you do yourself. You start with yourself at the beginning. Uh, Or or I would play with that, but generally, uh, if you're walking, sitting, you, you start with what's easy, then shift to that person. The reason for that is that the metta will develop so deeply uh, for that person, and it's supposed to be easy. You have to remember that this person's supposed to be easy. So that when you shift to the more difficult categories, and even dear friend is considered harder than the benefactor. Friend is considered harder than dear friend. Neutral's harder than that. Difficult is difficult. Um, 
And you wait until the metta is developed quite strongly before you shift to any other category. Um, if you're doing it, you'll notice that a lot of stuff will come up. Uh, every For me, with any person I did, every little nitpicking thing that ever happened <laughs> came up. It's, a, it's another purification process. And so when you, when you hit any barrier, meaning any aversion or desire or any hindrances come up, you shift back to the easy person. And by developing that, it's incredibly powerful. I mean, having... I think I did it six weeks in 1990, and that power of doing it for that person, still, whenever I bring that person up, it's so strong. It's really easy to shift to anyone difficult. When, when a lot of faces come in or different people come in, uh, you c- if you have enough concentration, you can just send a bit of metta to them and then just go back to the person you're doing. Um, there were times when I would feel guilty for not doing the people that would come to mind, and I would kind of struggle if my concentration wasn't so good. That, so then I would send a little bit more metta to those people. It's almost like they wanted metta or something, mm-hmm. and I'd feel bad if I didn't send it. And I'd send a little more, and then I'd go back to the person. And if you can't um, stay with the one person, if it feels like another person comes in or being, it's really, you know, it's fine if you send metta to that person. It's like, you know, if you feel like there are, there are a kind of flood of images or another person calling, it's really nice to send metta. So I wouldn't feel like something's wrong <laughs> or you're doing it wrong if you do that. It's just the uh, practice of metta, doing it for anybody or any being. It's just a wonderful practice. The question is, uh, when one's doing the Brahma-viharas, who's feeling the metta, who's feeling the karuna? Um, When we have an an emotion like fear, we let them come and go, but in the Brahma-viharas, who's feeling them? That's the question. There's so many levels to how the Brahma-viharas are working. And so if you take the relative level of 
you know, being, me being Michelle and being a separate mind and body, there's a way in which, say, if we just take metta, the metta is very healing. It's, you know, it's like it's like it puts us back together, in a in a way that's um, it's putting you back together out of love. So anywhere where we're fragmented, especially we tend to get fragmented around not being able to experience difficult emotions, and we tend to um, become unglued or too rigid. The met the met. Pardon? Uh-huh. And then... And it seems to like allow you to go to look deeper. This tranquility allows insight. It seems like this practice allows tranquility. The, there's many... There's, there's jhanic factors that happen in metta so that, that one of them is tranquility. That the akagata, the fifth jhanic factor... There's, there's happiness, sukha, that's the fourth. Rapture is the third. And then the aiming, the connecting, they're the first two. Um, see, in Vipassana practice, we're trying to relax enough to experience what's happening. Instead of being separate from the experience, we're, we're going through a process of, of relaxing enough to what you would say, get out of the way and become the experience. The metta practice helps us to accept what's happening. You know, there's that relaxation. There's that deep allowing. Um, some people find that easier than others. So, so the metta practice, as much as you need to bring it in to help soften and let the experience be, because if we get very analytical about what's happening and you know, try to figure out <laughs> who's experiencing fear from the outside, you know, or if we're trying to make uh, ourselves get rid of the fear or you know, somehow get to the bottom of it, all of that isn't really just letting it be. Yeah, yeah it works. <laughs> I mean, in any moment, there's just what's happening, you know. And I think it's important to see that the Brahma Viharas are very positive spiritual emotions. We don't have to then feel like we have to get rid of the other ones either. It's a matter, it's like out of the acceptance comes the ability to just see them clearly and see that they're just coming and going. Hmm. Have a good day. Any questions this morning?
The question is about metta jhana, and um, she understands the purposes of the purpose of saying the phrases and feeling the meaning, right? Um, what one is being mindful in metta practice of is of metta, and so you're developing mindfulness of metta as you say the phrases and understand the meaning of it the the understanding of the metta keeps deepening and deepening and one can get absorbed into the mind can get absorbed into that metta so the the jhanas are getting deeper more deeply absorbed into the metta in the metta practice the concentration um, the different jhanic factors within a jhana uh, just imply the different kind of depth of absorption. So if you can say the phrases and understand the meaning, that's the beginning of the depth of the concentration. And then when that starts to get strong, there's usually some joy or piti. It's called piti in Pali. And then the, uh, the, there's a kind of sweetness a happiness that comes, sukha. And then there are times when the mind becomes very quiet. That's called ikagata. Um, these, these, these jhanic factors happen in vipassana as well as metta. So there's, you know, there's the getting absorbed in metta. There's the development of metta, which is one purpose. And then there's the d- uh, deepening of the concentration where these qualities of um, joy happiness and tranquility happen and this happens in uh, Vipassana as well as Metta so there's a lot of purposes there's, un, you know, there's the understanding and meaning there's the development of being able to feel boundless love uh, for oneself and others there's joy, happiness and tranquility In the, in the metta practice, uh, when the concentration goes, the hindrances hit you. So it's a kind of heaven-hell practice. Uh, <laughs> the slight <laughs> problem with concentration practices that when it goes, the hindrances hit you. Yeah. little minor detail. <laughs> Ajana is just the mind gets absorbed in what's happening rather than noticing what's happening. You know, the mind, instead of the mindfulness going towards the moment-to-moment experience, the mindfulness goes into the, you know, gets absorbed into the metta. You kind of ride it. You hold it. The difference between metta and vipassana is that in metta you're holding what's happening and in vipassana you're letting go. So they're very different practices. What was the second part? There was... T- how, how do you do metta when you're eating? When you're eating. eating. Um, how do you do when you're eating? You just, you know, you just bring your fork. Up. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> say, may I be happy, or may you be happy. You know, and then two, may I be happy, or may you be happy. You, the focus of the attention isn't on so much the uh, sensations of chewing or eating. The, sensa- the focus is much more on continuing to say the phrases or feeling the, uh, feeling the image or the feeling of a person. So the focus isn't so much on your moment-to-moment experience, but on, on the metta. You can eat more when you do metta practice. <laughs> When I do metta practice, um, and I'm imagining, for example, a neutral person or whomever, uh, do I say, may you, to this mental image, be happy, be safe, or do I say, may he be happy? As though the blessing mm-hmm. is coming in a more cosmic way, and I'm wishing the blessing, or am I giving the blessing? I would go with whatever works for you in terms of connecting. You, most people will tend to say, may you, because it'll be feeling of um, giving. Yeah. Um, Sometimes the concentration will get so strong that the boundary between you and that person will disappear and it'll feel like you're, you're saying, may you be happy, but it, it's like a very deep feeling and there's no sense of a giver or receiver. There's just the metta. Uh, so you can say, may he or may you, depending on what helps you connect that to that person. Pardon? What is rapid noting? Um, is there any context for this? Like, <laughs> Steve said to stop reading. <laughs> right, it's a memory, I know. Um, the first characteristic of existence, anicca, impermanence, uh, the velocity at which uh, our moment to moment experience is changing is extraordinary. And there are times when you're sitting where one will start to notice if you let go of control and you let go of control of the anchor and you just notice what's happening it, it sound, thought, body sensations they're, they're happening very, very quickly and so the attention can get um, more and more awake as you practice and there'll be times where it'll feel like many, many there are many, many notings you can think of noting as noticing. You'll notice many, many uh, different 
objects of attention happening, whether it's knowing, whether you're knowing, if the focus is more knowing what's happening or the object is appearing and disappearing very quickly, but there's a lot of... The experience is one of rapid change. Sometimes it'll feel like things really slow down. Sometimes it'll feel like things really um, get fast. If you just even tried to notice how quickly thoughts happen, you'll get a sense of that. What's a skillful way to work with um, not being interested? Like total The question is, how do you, what's a skillful way to deal with non-interest? It's so wonderful to be able to um, let that be okay. There's a, you know, there's a way in which, you know, we can be, um, go through different landscapes on the retreat. And one of the landscapes that we have to deal with as human beings is boredom or not having interest and it's really connected to energy and so if the energy is low there's usually much less interest in what's happening and it's okay there's a way in which you can um, keep going you know that I learned to, in my practice to keep going no matter what there's, but you can do it in a way that if you're okay with it there's no problem you know it's just I call it the boredom place or the not being interested place. And you kind of pull in and you just go along or you go outside more and walk. And there's a way in which you wait. You can wait through these periods. You can try to apply effort. You know, you can really, as you're walking, you can see if you can look more closely. You can, you can call up things like knowing that you're going to die any moment. Or, you know, there's ways in which you can call up um, energy, but if it doesn't come, then equanimity, being okay with how it is, is really important. And if you don't fight it and try to force anything and just go through it, the energy will come up and then you'll be interested again. If we have a lot of aversion or resistance to it, we, the energy just tends to go down lower and then we tend to judge ourselves and self-hatred comes and doubt and there's a whole slew of hindrances that come around low energy and not being interested. I mean, I used to pick up a whip and just whip myself and say, work harder, work harder, work harder until there'd be this huge pool of blood around me and I'd hate myself because I took it personally. You know, so that was a, a landscape that I felt that I got to know very well. And when I noticed it coming, I'd say, okay, wait a minute, I don't have to hurt myself here. I can just go through it. In some ways, once you get used to it, it's, it's not so painful. It's much less painful than, you know, an aversion attack. The other aspect of this is that we tend to be intensity junkies. And in some ways, an aversion attack is, is, you know, it's much more intense than boredom, and we tend to go for it more. So boredom is kind of quiet and soft, and if you can get into that soft quietness, you might find that 
it's pleasant and that you start to be interested in List other ways to bring up energy. The walking meditation. Um, every time I came into Upandita, and he, if I wasn't doing the three speeds of walking, uh, he would always say, he always knew, somehow by the way I reported, he'd say, you're not doing the walking right. And he'd be totally disgusted, you know, and he'd say, go. You know, and he, he was right. Uh, and, and if one's energy, the balance of energy is off, I often find that the three speeds, because they do different things, they balance different factors, if something's off, usually the energy will balance. Maybe not in a day, but over time, the energy tends to d- balance if you do the faster speed, the medium speed, and the slow speed. Uh, and then, you know... Sometimes remembering a time in practice where the energy was, was the, you know, remembering kind of good times in practice sometimes opens up. And anything that you can do to open up the mind and bring some energy staring. And the, old, the old ways were to uh, stare at light, whether it's moonlight you know, or something bright. Uh, and I think Steve's going to talk about energy tonight, so I'm sure he's going to come up with <laughs> a long list. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. <laughs> um, there's just two short announcements which you'll hear over and over again during the retreat. Are there any questions this morning? The question is, what phrases, metaphrases, would you send to someone who's no longer living? Whatever ones you connect with, with that person, you know. Um, I think the traditional ones, uh, you might leave out strong and healthy of body if you, you know, it just depends on if you're sending it to the person as they're incarnated, or as you remember them, you know, because they'll be in some other form. In the, in the present moment, they're in some other form. So you can either send the metta to them uh, without kind of an image, but just sending it out to wherever they are and wish them well wherever they are. Or sometimes you can just remember their image and send it to that, that feeling of that person. I think the words aren't as important as sort of the, the feeling that you're getting across. Sati as well, or is that another faculty? 
-hmm. in 20 minutes, I'm going to go sit with Carol, and uh, I'm really concerned because I can't really do that well. And yet, my sitting seemed like moment to moment, I was able to follow a good number of where the mind was going. Synoptically, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. The question is around um, being able to remember his experience and be able to describe it or report it in an interview. Uh, and he's wondering if the mindfulness is the same as that ability to remember and describe uh, the experience. I think I would put most of your effort into the mindfulness, meaning that you really try to uh, work with in your, in your sittings, walkings, as best you can, um, remembering to be here, keeping it simple. Uh, and then I would take about five minutes of a sitting and five minutes of a walking a day and see if you can remember that and describe it. Just keep, even if five minutes is long, you might start with one minute. Uh, and it could be the last minute of your sitting so that you don't have to remember <laughs> too hard. It's an art to remember to describe it. You know, I remember when I first started working with Upandita that uh, it was a whole other kind of experience to try to remember my experience and describe it. It's a great tool, but I, I don't think it's so good to try to do that all day. I would just take a very small part of a sitting or a very small part of a walking and then see if you can remember it. And I found that that practice of remembering kept building. You know, I just try, I'd start small and... Um, it just kept my ability to remember kept getting better as I as I did bit by bit. But you do have to have that intention. You can have a sitting and be very mindful and not particularly remember. Uh, you do have to have that intention in, to remember. So two it's more like I think it just adds another pitch of presence to remember. That's why I found it helpful. In a way, I found it helpful, but it can be too much pressure. You know, so it's finding that balance of finding it, finding it useful, uh, but not adding too much pressure. Uh-huh. Or, or just sort of say, okay, you know, go, go into the interview and just see what's there, and then each time that happens, over time, it'll get better. Look, uh, the question, I hope you all heard the question, because I'm not sure I can... Right, right. There's something different that happens when you try... Uh, to remember a bit of a sitting than just going in and reporting, you know, for whatever. It is, there is a difference. Uh, and I would suggest that you do whatever 
has the least amount of pressure for you. So if it felt like too overwhelming, to I wouldn't try to do it every sitting. It's too much, or every walking. I would just try to do a little bit of a fairly clear sitting or a fairly clear walking in a day. Uh, one of the ways that that helps is because um, one really sees the difference between any conceptual or interpretations we're making about the experience and the actual experience. It's very useful for that little bit of time to try to do that. It helps the practice the rest of the day. But also to try to remember all day, will just it'll get in the way of your experience. That's where you have to find that fine line. Uh, and just a little bit of this goes a long way. Just you know, try to try to just a little do a little bit and then drop it. I don't think you can uh, waste your time in an interview if you go in, you know, with the sincerity and humility, and if you don't, if you don't feel like you can do this part, particular way of reporting, just just go in and you know, say, just say whatever has been happening as best you can. You know, it, it's just because it's such a long day, and you'll find as the retreat goes on, there's. There's a lot that happens. So it does help to kind of edit it into something uh, that you can talk about. Uh, but I've, I did a lot of practice before I ever tried to do that style of reporting for ten years. <clears throat> and I think that you can make use of the interview just by being honest. It, the most important thing is to be honest with what's happening. That's, that's hard enough. <laughs> Have a good day. Any questions this morning? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure we go. Is it Saturday? Saturday yeah, Saturday night. 
It's my favorite day of the year because we get an extra hour of sleep. Oh, oh, extra hour of practice. <laughs> That's what I meant to say. <laughs> when, when the mind is, is just flooded with thoughts and, and emotions, you know, it's a real anxiety attack. Um, I'm sure this has been answered already, but how do you deal with it? And how do you, how do you really let go of it so that it, you know, when it subsides a little bit, you don't just end up diving right back into it? The question <coughs> is about a anxiety attack with a lot of thought and emotion coming and um, how do you let go of it? There's two ways that I would recommend working with it. One is uh, if you can't at first be mindful of it, meaning that you can recognize that it's anxiety and then accept that it's happening. Um, Compassion is really helpful. So compassion is this ability to kind of step outside of oneself at first and and just look and see that one is in pain. And usually in an anxiety attack, we're in pain. And there's a tendency to try to get rid of the fear rather than to open to that experience. So we tend to want to let it go before we're willing to experience it. Uh, so if that willingness not to experience it isn't there, it's helpful to kind of step outside and kind of look in and just see that the body and mind is in pain and see if you can just care about it from the outside with this very soft care. Usually that care, you know, if we can soften into the experience, we'll shift. we can shift into seeing if we're able to experience anxiety like we would, you know, what is the sound of a bird? What is fear? If we can find that same kind of relationship of exploring it and seeing that it's just for the first time, you know, what is the experience of fear? And in that, when we can shift to that exploration, that pure exploration, it's actually not it might not move it to pleasant. It might still be unpleasant. But it's amazing. It's like uh, when there are extreme attacks, it's like being in a hurricane. And it's, there's an eye in the hurricane. And it's wonderful to experience it when you can free oneself of that and aversion to it. You know, and it's helpful to note, if you're trying to be mindful of it, it helps to note fear or anxiety just very lightly to remind oneself what's happening and to see if you can get out of the head, (laughs) you know, get out of the story about it. Uh, Because fear can attach itself to anything. You know, that's why I often note fear attack number 2 billion. 222 because it can fear, the experience of fear like anything can latch on to any kind of story but actually if we can drop out of that the head and the story and just experience it as body sensations and let it come and go it's usually not a problem the problem is usually the story and the aversion to the experience so what, what is where is 
Letting, letting, yeah. Right. Letting go happens when we uh, stop identifying with it. So the first step is letting it be. If we're trying to let it go out of aversion, we're reinforcing aversion. You know, so that usually doesn't work. It's sticky. The fear is sticky because the more we push it away, the more power it has. And until we can accept it and let it be, usually we won't um, let it go. We won't not identify with it. Because it's, we don't see that it's just fear. It's my fear. And there's, you know, it becomes something we have to let go of rather than that would we have that attitude about the sound of a bird. You know, if you sit there trying to let go of a sound of a bird, it would be kind of weird. You know, we don't have that relationship to the sound of a bird that we're trying to sit there and let go of it. We just note hearing and it's not my sound or the, you know, it's just the, the sound coming and going. With fear, <clears throat> we can have the same relationship to fear, that it's just fear. Even if it comes back 200 times in an hour, it's okay. It's just fear coming and going. A bird sound might happen 200 times in an hour, but we don't think that something's wrong. The freedom doesn't come from getting rid of it. The freedom comes from being able to experience it fully so we're no longer afraid of the experience of fear. So experience and and, and let go could be, it doesn't just happen once in an anxiety attack, it's like coming back to the breath, come back to experience it. Right, 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 right. Is there a point where it's skillful to just try to force myself to pay I would say to look at the intention. <laughs> uh, if we have the intention, the same, the same movement of mind can come out of escape or aversion, or it can come out of wisdom. So that moving away from something, if we're not able to be mindful of it, to rest the mind so that we get enough strength to be able to see it clearly, isn't, isn't avoidance, it's smart, it's wise. So the mo- usually with something like a storm, one would come back to the breath many, many times. You, you, would, you would go to the experience of fear, touch it a little bit and then move back to the breath. Go to the experience of fear, touch it a little bit and go back to the breath or open up to sound. Some way so that you're not in it so much that one's drowning in it. Uh, So it really helps to move away from it at times uh, so that you get enough strength, uh, openness of mind uh, to go back into it. It's the same with physical pain and it's the same with emotional pain. You take a little dose of it, of the fear, and see, oh, I can experience this and move away from it rather than to take such a big dose that it's debilitating and you, you can't see it clearly. And, and during the walking, um, would it be best to just sit the walking out or just to keep walking and not even, you know, just sort of walk but, but really be working with this inside? 
I would walk, walk in, you know, if you stay with the movement of the legs, you know, just walk, and then every once in a while check in and see if you can notice any fear. And if you do touch it lightly or do, or do some compassion, and then forget about it, ignore it, and walk again for a while, and then tune into it again. And if it's still there, see if you can experience it a little bit. You don't have to get to the bottom of fear and feel like you ha- you, you've got... You know, we tend to want to know and get it and feel like, okay, I know how to work with fear, and feel like we, it will never come back for the rest of our life. And, and that's not how it is. It's much more that you get a little experience of working with it, and it's like, oh, great. And then you can just forget it for a while. And then you don't have to worry about it coming back. <laughs> I mean, if you think that you've gotten rid of fear for the rest of your life, you know, it's kind of a, a delusion. <laughs> you know, it just... It's, it's, it's something I wouldn't worry about, that's for sure. <laughs> Just go, yeah, if, if it's feeling like if it's too much and you're not able to see it very clearly, move away from it. That, because that's smart. You're going to lose. If you go into it and there's no mindfulness, it's going to become worse and worse and worse. It's just strategy. Yeah, it, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, occasionally I experience like a knee weakening fear. And mm-hmm. you know, I know that that's coming out of control and aversion. But why does it have, and maybe this is more a medical question, but why does it have such a profound effect you know, on the body? Why, why does it, it's like a drain open, and all the energy just you know, leaks out? It's, well, we tend to be afraid of death. I mean, you know, if you, <laughs> if, you, if you look at it really closely, fear has a lot to do with the experience of being annihilated or, you know, that we're then, uh, not being. We're quite afraid of, we're afraid of pain. You know, uh, there's levels to pain. We're very afraid of pain. We're very afraid of not existing. And when it, when the experience is strong, I call it sewing machine legs. You know, it's like you know, there's a way in which the whole system just—that's fear, or you could call that terror. You know, there's levels, <laughs> there's levels to fear. Terror is when it really drains us pretty heavily, uh, and it's okay. You know, it's just fear. I mean, we come on a retreat to really experience our human life very fully. And the fear and a sense of me being a separate me, fear and I are like inseparable. And so often we have to face this experience of fear to untangle who we are. Okay, when when it is that strong... Mm -hmm.
Mm -hmm. I try to be aware of the effort to control it. And I see that the fear and the control are real closely tied together. Right. It, the control is usually aversion. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's like, if you can let go of the... You know, if one can see the aversion clearly and see if one can get to the experience of fear, it's usually, wow. You know, it can be, wow, look what's happening into the body. It's just amazing. Fear is amazing and ex- extraordinary to experience when there isn't any aversion to it. You know, and you can, if you're walking, sometimes it's helpful to just kind of go off by oneself somewhere and just kind of watch what it's like. It's amazing. It's okay. Often one has to bring in compassion because it's usually like a two-year-old part of us that surfaces. You know, it's not like we feel like we're a wise old man or woman. We usually feel like a terrified little kid. And, and usually we have to bring in, it's okay, you know, compassion, care about ourselves, uh, let it come and go. Mix the mindfulness and compassion. And then it's, it's just fear, just like it's just hearing. There's hurricanes in this world as well as sunny days. Hmm. Somebody must have given a talk about fear. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.